Nine presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Brought to you by Brilliance Audio. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, this is uh, John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of several anthologies, such as Wastelands and The Living Dead. My latest two books are The Living Dead 2 and The Way of the Wizard. And I also edit the magazines Lightspeed and Fantasy Magazine. And I'm David Barkertley. Uh, my short stories appear in books such as New Voices in Science Fiction and Fantasy the Best of the Year. And my newest stories are Cats in Victory and Lightspeed, The Skullface City in The Living Dead 2, and Family Tree in The Way of the Wizard. And today on the show, we'll be interviewing Ron Gilbert, lead designer of The Secret of Monkey Island and Monkey Island 2 LeChuck's Revenge, which are two of the greatest video games ever made, and which have both recently been re-released by LucasArts as special editions with updated graphics and sound, so definitely check those out. And Ron's latest game is called Death Spank, and it combines the storytelling character and humor of Monkey Island with the action and power acquisition of a Diablo-style role-playing game. So we're really looking forward to chatting with Ron about all that stuff as well as his thoughts about the current state of the game industry. And then stick around after the interview when John and I will be talking, as we often do, about the sadly neglected adventure game genre. All right, well, let's get Ron Gilbert on the phone. Hello? Hi, this is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hello. Thanks for joining us on the show. All right, so first of all, could you just tell us a little bit about your new game, Death Spank? Sure. Uh, let's see. Death Bank was a, it's a concept that a friend of mine, uh, Clayton Kozlarik, and I came up with many years ago. And it started out as a comic that was on my website, Grumpy Gamer. And Clayton and I were doing these comics, basically making fun of the games industry. And we needed this really over-the-top, bizarre character for one of our comics that was in a game. And so we came up with uh, Death Bank. As we started doing the comics and writing things about him, we really realized that he was a great character. We started coming up with stories and fleshing out his world and really decided that he needed a game. And that's kind of how the game came about. So, yeah, I mean, so Death Spank is, you know, among other things, a parody of Diablo-style games. I mean, what are some of the aspects of those games that you wanted to poke fun at? A lot of it was poking fun at, at the character. I mean, Deathbank, just in his name, it's such a ridiculous name, and he is this big, over-the-top uh, character, and he's got a lot of uh, bravado. And just looking at all the covers of games out there from, I mean, not even Duke Nukem, who's, which is kind of a parody, but just everything else out there, and the, the characters are these big, you know, ripped, strapped characters, and they just kind of look so ridiculous. And, and that's really what, what Deathbank is it's kind of about, really parroting those things and there's a lot of the, what rpgs do with you know the way loot is gathered and stats are done and and the way that people just send you off on quests and so it was really trying to parody a lot of those things uh, in the game plus the story you know he's he's searching for these you know thongs of virtue which is a little bit of a parody of you know lord of the rings and the rings and and on all those kinds of things Okay, so a film critic, Roger Ebert, famously stated that video games are not art. If you could force him to play a few games, which ones would you pick to change his mind? <laughs> you know, it's a really interesting question because I've certainly written a bunch of things and tweeted a lot of things about Roger Ebert and his stance on that. And afterwards, I went back and spent literally days reading his entire website and all of the essays he's written and a lot of the interviews that he's done. 
And I mean, I hate to say this, but I've almost come around to his way of thinking on this. I think he was wrong to state that video games will never be art. But if you really read what he views film as, I don't think we're really there yet. I honestly don't. So I think in some ways he's almost convinced me uh, that, that he might be right. The video games are not yet. But I think it's incredibly important that they are and that they're seen as art. Could you elaborate on what what is what do you think is missing from games that, that film has right now? There's a depth to them. There's a depth to the stories, and there's a depth to the, the message and the purpose of what's going on in them. And I think we're just we're just we're very shallow, and we're not really digging very deep on that stuff. And a game, I mean, I'll give you an example of a game that I think comes really close to breaking that boundary. A recent one is Limbo, and that that is a game that really does kind of make you think. And I do, I do like that, and I think that that game does come pretty close to to being something that I would consider art. And and that is probably a game I would have Ebert play. And one of the problems with having him or anybody play these games is there's a certain language that you have to learn to to play games to really understand them. And and I have no doubt that if he sat down and played Limbo, he really wouldn't understand it because I don't know that he could really get into playing the game that the way that it was meant to play and i think that is important to kind of understanding you know why why they are art or can be art okay so you and tim schaefer and dave grossman re- uh, recently provided commentary for the new monkey island 2 special edition uh, what sorts of things did you guys talk about i asked because i own a mac so i haven't been able to listen to any of it <laughs> we just went through they they we didn't obviously play the entire game that's like you know forty hours of gameplay, but uh, you know we sat down and someone else just hopped around the game and really just reminisced about things. You know, we'd see scenes and it would remind us of of something. And there was a scene where uh, Guybrush uh, you know digs up the grave and he holds up this bone and his pants fall down. And that was something that you know it, Tim in particular was very against when we put it in the game, and I was very for it. And so we kind of, you know, brought all that up again and, and argued it back and forth about, you know, was that the right thing to do or, you know, should we have done? But I think a lot of it for the three of us was just a weird trip down memory lane because you see these things and you go, oh, yeah, no, remember that? Remember when we did this? And, uh, you know, a couple of, you know, alternatives of things that we, that we could have done. And it was it was great. I had a lot of fun with it. So you recently blogged about replaying Secret of Monkey Island and being stumped by some of the puzzles. Uh, what's it like playing a game that you designed yourself? Yeah, I usually don't play them. You know, after I after I get done with them, I usually you know I usually don't play them. Like when Monkey Island finished, I hadn't really played that game for twenty years, hmm. and it was it was neat to go back and play it because I had forgotten things. It really, I, I guess, it really isn't forgotten. More as I was misremembering iterations of stuff where I would see something and the first thing would jump into my mind was, you know, a, a puzzle version of it that didn't actually make it into the game. And then I'd start to solve it that way. And then I'd realize, Hey, wait a minute, this doesn't work. And then I have to sit down and think, okay, what did we actually do uh, for the game? The puzzle where you put the, uh, the, the, the grog in the, in the cups and you have to transfer it and make it up to the, to let Otis out. That was one that, actually stumped me for a while because I, I just I just didn't remember it. Twenty years is a long time. You just kind of forget that stuff. I guess it's just more embarrassing when it's your own game. 
Okay, so you've said that the Tim Powers novel on Stranger Tides is one of the things that inspired Monkey Island. Uh, how did you come across that book, and what was it about it that captured your imagination? Well, at the point that I was writing the original story, I mean, obviously I knew it was about pirates and and all that stuff, and there was, uh, you know, a, a young wannabe pirate that came into the story that, you know, was Guybrush, and I had all that. But I was really kind of struggling with who is the villain, you know, in all of this and, and what you know, what is that villain doing and, and what is that character like? And I don't remember how I read on Stranger Tides. Nobody recommended it to me. I probably just picked it up and started reading it. But it was that, that Blackbeard character in there that really informed LeChuck. And there was also a lot of voodoo stuff that was in on Stranger Tides. And I pulled a lot of that into Monkey Island. So that I think those two things were the big influencers of that book on the game. Uh, so do you read a lot of fantasy and science fiction um, uh, novels? I read a lot of science fiction. I don't read a lot of fantasy. I don't really like fantasy novels. I, I enjoy it in my games, but mm -hmm. I really don't. And, and I enjoy it in movies, but I really don't enjoy it in books. So mostly I read uh, science fiction uh, novels and then non-science fiction stuff. Uh, so who are some of your favorite authors? Uh, science fiction-wise, I just got done reading uh, this just massive five volume, probably close to a million pages uh, by Peter F. Uh, Hamilton. Mm. I think the first one was Pandora's Star. And it kind of is this world that spans, I don't know, maybe 5,000 years from one novel to the other. And it's uh, really fascinating. I really enjoyed that a lot. Uh, have you ever written any prose fiction yourself? I have tried doing it. And my problem with writing prose fiction is I don't have the attention span. You know, I, I sit down and I get halfway through the first chapter and then I just want to quickly get through the book. So I, I view writing the same way I do reading. I just want to get through it quickly. So I just don't have the attention span for it. Have you ever thought about just writing like a 2,000 word short story or something? I have done that. I did a little bit of that back with uh, Monkey Island. I actually wrote some short stories as I was trying to get the get the pirate stuff figured out. But, but no, I haven't really seriously uh, done that. Do you still have any of those? I don't. I, I am the inverse of a pack rat. <laughs> I throw everything away as soon as I don't need it. And and uh, I, I've come to regret that in some ways because there's a lot of really neat stuff I wish I, I wish I still had. Do you remember what any, what any of the short, short pieces were about? They were just about uh, the character of Guybrush and his, uh, you know, wanting to become a pirate. And there, there was one just about him sailing around on a ship. And, I mean, these were, when I say short stories, I'm talking like five pages long, just to try to have me better understand the character, you know, of, of, of who he was early on in the game. And he changed quite a bit. He was much more of a serious character. He was much more of a, you know, a very serious foil for the comedy that was going on in the game. And, and that really lightened up a lot with him you know, once we started making the game and, and actually writing him. Uh, he still is a foil in a way, but he's not quite as serious as he was originally. Okay, so uh, both Monkey Island and Death Spank give the player the option of constantly making smart-ass remarks. Uh, do you go around saying stuff like that all the time, or is that just what you're thinking? <laughs> yeah, I think it's what I'm thinking, or it's what I wish I could say, but I don't. I don't actually say it. <laughs> Uh, so speaking of smart-ass remarks, uh, I've always heard that Orson Scott Card wrote the insults for the sword fighting in Monkey Island. Uh, why did you outsource the task, and how did you pick Orson Scott Card to do it? 
That's an interesting story. Uh, I don't know exactly why this was the case, but <laughs> he was hanging around the Lucasfilm's games group for quite a while. And I, I, I'm trying to remember why it was, but I, but I really don't. I mean, he was a, a game reviewer at the time. Is that right? He, uh, I don't, I don't really remember. Uh, you know, I had read his, uh, you know, Ender's Game and, uh, The Seventh Son. So I, I kind of knew of him and I don't really remember why. I mean, he was just hanging around a lot and he gave us actually some workshops where we did some exercises that he had. Uh, for creating characters and, and story and stuff, which were really fascinating. And, you know, I wanted to do this insult sword fighting stuff. And, and I remember just chatting with him about it at one point and he kind of volunteered. It's like, Oh, let me write those. I want to write those. It's like, okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a big formal process for him to do it, but uh, yeah, no, it was really neat. Uh, so, so did you ever get that royalty check from Disney for turning The Secret of Monkey Island into a movie called Pirates of the Caribbean? Uh, no, I haven't got it yet, but they tell me. They tell me that it, it's, in, it's in the mail. <laughs> so you heard that the Un- Un- Stranger Tides is going to be the fourth uh, Pirates movie? <laughs> yeah, I did hear that. That's, that's really funny. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you know, they, there was some work uh, happening uh, at ILM after I left for turning Monkey Island into a movie. I wasn't a part of any of that because I was gone by then. But Steve Purcell, who was the you know one of the main artists on Monkey Island, he was involved in that a little bit, and he was telling me all about it. And I guess uh, one of the writers that worked on the Monkey Island movie went on to be one of the writers for the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. But you can definitely see a lot of things in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies that I just have to believe were taken from Monkey mm-hmm. Island. But it's hard to say, right? Because I took so much from Pirates of the Caribbean as well that, you know, who knows? But it is weird that now on Stranger Tides that they're kind of going back to that source material, which was, you know, an inspiration for me as well. Okay, so Monkey Island 2 has one of the most famously odd endings in all of video games. Uh, did you have any idea when you created that ending that it was going to be something that people would still be bugging you about 20 years later? <laughs> No, I, I I didn't. And when I did that ending, I really planned on making a third one. My decision to leave uh, Lucasfilm and then to go on and start Humongous Entertainment was something that came about, you know, fairly quickly. But when we were working on the game and when that ending was there, I did expect to do a third game, which would kind of explain everything that was going on uh, with that. Yeah, and so, I mean, do you think there's any chance that we ever will see sort of a Ron Gilbert's Monkey Island 3 where you would do your original idea for the to wrap up the trilogy? I would really like to. There's definitely a period of time where I wasn't really sure whether I wanted to do another Monkey Island, but I think I've come around to the point that, yeah, I would like to do one. And I've had conversations with uh, LucasArts over the years about doing another Monkey Island, and it's... You know, it's always something that they're very, very interested in, and we talk, and we, you know, get fairly far down the path, and then they fire their president, and then, uh, you know, everything starts over again. So I think that has happened. I think with every single, you know, regime change there, uh, I had been talking to them about Monkey Island, so who knows? Uh, so you consulted on the new Tales of Monkey Island game. Uh, what was your role with that, and uh, were, there any specific, were there any specific ideas in the game that you contributed? Uh, yeah, I did some consulting on that because, you know, obviously Dave Grossman is there and uh, Dave and I are really good friends. So I spent three days with 
Telltale and the designers there early on in the process and just a lot of brainstorming. They had a general story flow that they wanted to take everything through already written down. So it was kind of working within that framework, but it was really neat. It, it, it took me, you know, maybe a half a day to really get my head back in Guybrush's head and, and Monkey Island, but it was, it was, it was really neat to do that. Um, so you said that you still receive several emails a day about Monkey Island. Um, what have been some of the most odd or memorable letters you've received? <laughs> well, most of them are, tell me what the secret of Monkey Island is. <laughs> I would say that's probably 75% of the email that I get from people, which is just, you know, wanting to know the, the secret. I also get emails uh, where people will spend page after page talking about the ending to Monkey Island 2 and what it meant trying to, you know, figure it out and tying all these things together. And it's it's interesting because, you know, sometimes they're almost right. They're starting to get there. And other times I just read this and I think, what are you thinking? Like, how <laughs> how can you put all this stuff together and, and, and make this out? Uh, some guy wrote, I don't know if it was, I don't think it was a master's thesis, but somebody wrote this big, long deconstruction for some degree they were working on uh, in college about the the meaning of Monkey Island and how it relates to Joseph Campbell and the hero's <laughs> journey. And and I, I read this and it was incredibly well written, you know, as you would kind of expect at that level. But it was just, it was really, really fascinating because I didn't realize I was that smart. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I listened to an interview with the writers of Lost once and, and they were asked what was the craziest fan theory about Lost. And they, they said one theory was that the whole thing was a dream that the dog was having. Um, <laughs> have you had anything any suggestions along those lines for uh the ending for monkey island 2 uh no i haven't had anything that weird that's actually good see that would have been a better ending for lost yeah i agree they should, <laughs> they, should they should shoot that one uh so you know you seem like a pretty good natured guy but your your blog is called the, the grumpy gamer uh why did you choose that name and why are you so grumpy grumpy gamer actually started out I think I registered that URL in 1998. It's been around forever. And originally, I wanted to build a website that was uh, not reviewing games, but reviewing reviews of games. Hmm. So instead of reviewing, you know, the latest Halo, I would go through and review everybody's reviews of Halo and kind of talk about, you know, what they were getting right in their reviews and, you know, what was ridiculous about their reviews. And that was the, the original idea. But you know, that's a lot of work. So I never actually got around to doing that. But I just, I had this URL that I always liked called the Grumpy Gamer. And so when I decided to start a blog, uh, I just, I just grabbed that URL because I thought it was, I thought it was kind of funny. And I certainly am, you know, quite opinionated about, about games and can get sometimes quite grumpy about them. So it, it, it did fit quite well. But people are surprised when they meet me. I think they expect me to be grumpy all the time. About <laughs> So I don't know if they're disappointed when they meet me and they find out I'm not or they're actually happy. Uh, so one thing I'm always going on about is how I feel that the Sierra Adventure games I played as a kid were really a positive influence on me, that they helped me learn how to read and how to type and how to spell, and they got me interested in folklore, and they largely encouraged finding creative, nonviolent solutions to problems. And a lot of modern games look like fun, but I wonder how much redeeming social value they have. Uh, what do you think about that? I think it's a really valid concern. Uh, I really do. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of games that do seem to be a lot of just vacuous violence. 
and that does it it does bother me and it goes back a little bit to the argument about games as art you know are they art or are they just toys for kids and while i don't think we have uh come close to scratching the surface of what movies can be as art i i think they are going to be very important and they're going to be very influential and i think designers and developers need to understand that what they're making is very influential to people and they need to take some responsibility uh, for that at, at some level. And it's not to say the game shouldn't be violent. I mean, I enjoy playing violent games as well, but I think there needs to be some kind of a moral thread that runs through that stuff. And if there isn't, I think, I think it really could be a problem. Okay. So uh, two quotes I've heard about the game industry over the years have really stuck with me and I'd like to get your reaction to them. Um, one was a magazine article talking about Richard Garriott, uh, a.k.a. Lord British, the creator of the Ultima series. And, and this article said, if it seems like a lot of the magic has gone out of games, maybe it's because they used to be made by a man in a cape, and now they're made by men in business suits who do lunch. Um, and another was a quote from Leisure Suit Larry creator Al Lowe, who said simply, doesn't anyone in this industry ever laugh anymore? Uh, what do you think about those quotes? I think those are both really good and accurate quotes. Uh, I never wore a cape. <laughs> just want to state that uh, right up front. But but I think there is some truth to that. It's it's about the passion, really. It's the, the passion that people have for things versus the business, you know, that people have for things. I don't think there's anything wrong with us being a business. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, people wanting to make money off this stuff. But one of the things that does inform games as being, you know, art, as opposed to just toys, is is that that personal thing, that personal piece of somebody that they put that they put into the game. And if games are really just built by companies and built by marketing departments and built by focus groups, you really lose that. You know, when I watch a movie or I read a book, I'm looking for that that soul of the author in that. You know, what what does this person think about these things? And that's easy with a book because they're generally written by a single person. Um, it's harder with movies because movies are a little more like games. They're made by hundreds of people, but but there are you know there's the directors and there's the writer and 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 they they really do in, inform you know what that movie is and what that movie is saying. And I look in games and I also look for that same thing. Where is the soul of the author in this? And it is in some games it's very hard to find. You look at a game like Limbo and it's clearly there. I mean there's just there's no doubt that this was made by some people who are very passionate about things. But can you really say the same thing about something like Halo or Call of Duty or Medal of Honor or any of these? I just you know, I don't know. I, I play I play those games and and there is something that is a little vacuous about them. Um, and how about the humor? I mean, do you think that there's less humor in games than there used to be? I don't know if there's less humor than there used to be. I think humor is a very, very difficult thing to do in games. One of the biggest problems uh, is that the pacing of them is controlled by the player. It's not really controlled by the author. And in a movie or in writing, the author controls the pacing. And so it's difficult to do humor in games or games revert into just slapstick because that is something that they can do. It's just, you know, a bunch of funny stuff that happens on the screen, but real humor is in the writing and it's in the characters and it's in how this world unfolds on itself. And that is an art form that I don't know that a lot of people fully understand. 
And because of that, humorous games go out there and they don't do very well. And that's just another reason for publishers to not want to do humorous games. And, you know, Deathspank's done very well and it's, you know, very funny, or at least I like to think it is. And I'm, I hope that maybe that will cause other publishers to go, Hey, wait a minute. Deathspank did really well and it was really funny. So maybe we should allow some more funny games to be made. What are, what are some other examples, would you say, of, of good humor in games? Recently? Uh, or, or ever. <laughs> I mean, if you can't come it, recently. <laughs> well, I, I do like the Leisure Larry stuff. I, I, I did find that funny. And I think Al Lowe did a really good job of just walking this line between, you know, crass sophomoric humor and something that, that was actually kind of funny. And he was, he was very good at that. Uh, but I just, I, I don't really, know a lot of games that I would consider funny as a, as opposed to games that are funny just because, you know, what they're doing is kind of funny. Like, you know, angry birds for the iPhone. That's funny, right? You're launching birds into buildings trying to kill pigs, right? That's funny, but, but it's not funny in that way that, you know, something like monkey Island or death is funny. So I, I can't really think of a lot of games that, uh, that really have done that very well. So you mentioned this game Limbo. Um, I haven't actually played that one. Could you talk about what it is and what makes it so good? Well, Limbo is how does somebody describe it? It's just it's all done in black and white, and you don't really understand what's going on in the beginning, which I think is one of the charms of it. You're just this little boy, and it's this black and white world, and there's no speech, there's no voice, there's no text, there's no nothing. And you're just on this journey as you travel from the left side of the screen to the you know, right side of the screen, essentially. And you're solving these very uh, physical puzzles along the way. And it's this weird world and there's, you know, weird giant spiders and, and these you know, kind of characters that seem to run away from you every time you, you get close to them. And it really does kind of make you think. And and one of the things that the old adventure games had is is when you would play those, a lot of the enjoyment of those games, and this sounds ridiculous, but it's sitting there staring at the screen because your mind was was puzzling through what to do. When you were playing, you know, Monkey Island, you weren't just running around, you know, destroying things. You actually sit there and go, well, you know, what is this and how do I fix this? And it's that, 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 that contemplation that's kind of interesting about games. And we've really lost that. Everybody just needs to be fed action all the time. What do I do? What do I do? What do I push? You know, who do I hit? And Limbo, I think, really brought back a lot of that old adventure game stuff. Because there were times in Limbo where I would just sit there on my couch and I'd just stare at the screen. And I just ponder, it's like, okay, well, how do I do this? If I do this, that happens. If I do this, then that doesn't happen. How do I solve this puzzle? And even though it's all just black and white, it is actually a very beautiful thing to to sit there and look at. And I think it just really draws you in as you're understanding, you know, what's this mystery about this little kid who's looking for his sister? Uh, so back in 1989, you wrote an article called uh, Why Adventure Games Suck. Uh, do you still agree with what you said back then? Yeah, that that article was, you know, a result of building Maniac Mansion, and it very directly led to Monkey Island. And Maniac Mansion uh, is, I think, my favorite game that I've made in a way, just because it was the first game, and it was 
trying to do a lot of new things. But Maniac Mansion is a very flawed game design. Uh, it's a fun game, and a lot of people really like it. But the puzzles in it are broken. There's a lot of puzzles that you have no idea that you've screwed things up, and you can play for hours before you realize that you, you've kind of messed the whole game up. And there are puzzles that are solved uh, in incorrect orders of things. And and so I really did a lot of thinking about it. And then I did the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade adventure game with David Fox and Noah Falstein. And as we were doing the puzzles for that, I really began, began to start to deconstruct the puzzles in a way. Well, what is a good adventure game puzzle? And so I came up with these rules, which uh, I wrote in this article for the Journal of Computer Game Design. That sounds really fancy and academic, but I wrote this article for that, and I just laid these out. And then when I did the design for Monkey Island, I just I followed all of these rules. Every single puzzle had to follow these rules as as kind of a test of, you know, is this theory correct or not? Uh, so LucasArts games were famous for making it impossible for the player to die. Uh, do you still think that's the best best design? Um, many articles online argue that, uh, that that removes a lot of the tension and believability from dramatic situations. Uh, well, they're wrong. <laughs> I, I think that it is, I think it is really important that the player doesn't die. And when I say die, right, I don't necessarily mean die, like, you know, sword through the eye type die, but like limbo. And let's take limbo, for example. You die all the time in limbo. So you're, you're moving along and you walk and this big giant spider leg comes out and impales you in the head and you die. But the game just restarts itself literally seconds before this thing happened. And I think that's okay. I don't think that violates the, you know, no death in adventure game rules. I think it actually maintains it at some level because what that's really talking about is players want to be immersed in whatever they're playing. It's the, the immersion in the world. And when you die, it pulls you out of this because now a dialogue box comes up and I have to scroll through and I have to find my save game and which save game that I want. And, and I, I think that just wrecks the immersion. And, you know, Limbo added death, but they, they kept you in the game during this. And I think that works. So that's why I think death is bad. It's, it's pulling you out of the world. Okay, so have you read the article on Old Man Murray titled Who Killed Adventure Games? And if so, do you agree with its basic premise that the main culprit was that too many adventure games had puzzles that were just stupid? Yeah, I have read that. And, and I think it's absolutely right. I think, I think, I think two things killed adventure games. Uh, the first thing was that the puzzles just got ridiculous. And I think players got to a point where they felt like they were not battling the game, but they were battling the game designer. <laughs> that it was now about what ridiculous puzzle can an adventure game designer put into this. And they didn't really have to make sense anymore. And it was stupid stuff. And, and I think people stopped worrying about, you know, continuity. It's like, I'm playing a game and, you know, my character just flew to L.A., but I forgot to pick up the pencil that was in the office in New York. It's like, what, there are no pencils <laughs> in L.A., right? And and yet, from a purely stripped-down puzzle standpoint, that works. But players cannot understand why they can't find a pencil in L.A. And and that, that again, pulls you out of that whole thing. And now you realize, you know what, I'm not really solving this game. I'm just trying to keep the adventure game designer from screwing with me. And that, 
unless you're really a hardcore adventure game player, it's very hard to explain to people why that makes any sense. So I, I do think that article is right. And then the other thing that I think killed adventure games was actually Doom. Is Doom came out and it introduced the PC gamer, the people that were playing a lot of adventure games, this very, very different type of game. And games were no longer these interesting contemplative things. I mean, even things like, you know, Ultima, which, you know, were the action games of, of the time, were were still very slow contemplative things. And then Doom came out and it hit us with these fancy graphics and it hit us with this kind of high testosterone gameplay. And it, I don't think it necessarily got a bunch of adventure game people to like these things, but it brought a whole bunch of different people into playing games that were not accustomed to the adventure games. And I don't think adventure games are, are died. They continue to sell the same units that they've always sold. It's just that these other games came out and started selling magnitudes more copies. And so everybody just became very, very focused on it. Uh, do you think that the internet has fundamentally changed the environment for puzzle-based games because now it's so easy and tempting to look up those solutions online? Yeah, I think it has. I think it has a lot. Uh, I I did not do any online help for Limbo. I mean, that was a when I sat down, I said I am not going to go look this <laughs> up on the web. I'm just going to play it. Uh, but but yeah, I think it does. And I think what it really what it really forces games to do is to build those hint mechanisms into the game. The worst thing for me as a designer is for somebody to stop playing my game and to open up a web browser because they really have just been removed from the game when they do that. And one of the things that uh, you know I wanted to do with DeskBank was to have those, that hint system built into the game. So the, the fortune cookies that you find around the world that you can use to get hints, it's it's part of the fantasy and it doesn't really require you to leave the game in order to get the hints. And they really were modeled after the old adventure game hint books that you, know, you would buy back in the nineties and it would, you know, give you a, you know, a problem. And then there were three or four hints and, you know, you'd use these little strips of, you know, a red cellophane and you, you know, you read the first hint and then if that didn't help it, you'd slide the cellophane down and read the next hint, which told you a little bit more. And then finally, the last hint just told you, you know, how to solve the problem. And that's what the fortune cookies were. They were, they, they were a way that, that it would just slowly give you more and more hints. So people who didn't want any hints just wouldn't use them. And people who just wanted to be told how to play the game, you just, you know, crunch through your fortune cookies and, and get the answer. So I think what the internet has done is it's forcing designers to deal with this problem that people want hints, but forcing us to put those mechanisms into the games themselves. And even, you know, before the red cellophane, they used to have uh, these things printed in invisible ink and you'd have to rub a mark, special marker over it to make the right. letters appear. And <laughs> those boy, that days, was a pain. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes the marker would run out of ink before you had revealed all the hints you needed. And Right, know. right. Um, yeah. Those were those were fun times. <laughs> um, so, have you played any good adventure games that have come out in the last ten years or so? Limbo, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm going to categorize it as an adventure game. Some people don't think of it as an adventure game, but I I think in some ways Limbo is you know a, the future of adventure games in some weird way. So I do think it's an adventure game. I think it's a brilliant adventure game, but I haven't played a lot of adventure games. Uh, you know, in, in, in quite a while, because there just haven't been a lot of them that have kind of perked my interest. 
Well, you know, several of the old Sierra games have been remade by fans, and fans mm -hmm. have even created all new King's Quest games from scratch. Uh, have you played any of those, and what's your take on that whole enterprise? I haven't played any of the fan remakes. I, I think it's really neat that people are doing this. We have a really big problem in this business, in this industry, because our, our creations of, I mean, just 20 years ago could very easily be lost. I mean, no one will be able to play them. And, you know, fans have done a lot of work to keep these things alive. And, you know, LucasArts re-releasing the Monkey Islands is, is a really great thing that they did. But before that, there was the Scum VM project, which was a group of people essentially reverse-engineered the Scum system that was used to build Maniac Mansion and Monkey Island and, you know, all sorts of games uh, that LucasArts did. So you can actually play all those old games on, on modern hardware. And I think that's incredibly important work just to keep these things around for for not only for consumers to play, but for, you know, new game designers to be able to play those things and understand what it was we were making. So I came across a website called GamerWidow.com that lists countless horror stories by women whose lives are falling apart because their boyfriends or husbands uh, spend all their time playing games, mostly MMOs like World of Warcraft. Uh, what do you think of quote-unquote game addiction, and do you think designers have any responsibility to make games that don't require an unreasonable time commitment from players? That's a tough question. I mean, do, do game designers have a responsibility to do that? I mean, look at things like Farmville. Those games are just engineered to be addictive. And I, I don't know that I really consider them games in some way. It's, it's they're really just about getting you to just focus on this and click a whole bunch of times. And I do have a hard time finding a lot of redeeming qualities and, you know, things like, uh, like, like Farmville. Although I played Animal Crossing a lot, and I was very addicted to that game. But I don't know that it controlled my life. I certainly play a lot of World of Warcraft, but I don't know that it controls my life necessarily. Well, I think there's there's different types of games. There there are games like uh, you know just you know just standard ordinary games. You play them and and you're done with them. And things like you know Monkey Island, a game like that. And, you know, I don't think anyone is addicted to Monkey Island. You know, they're not playing it day after day after day and, you know, letting their relationships go to hell uh, because of it. Where games like Farmville or World of Warcraft, these are these are never-ending games. Or any game where there's online play, where you're, you know, in battlegrounds or things like that. And I think, yeah, I think people can be addicted to it. But I certainly know people who are, seem to be addicted to television as well. So I, th I think game designers who specifically build their games to be addictive, I think that's a really bad thing. But if you're just building a game and it is just addictive because it's a lot of fun, I don't know that we have a responsibility to make our games less fun <laughs> because people happen to be playing them a lot. And I do worry about things like Farmville because I don't, I don't know whether they're making this game to be anything else but addictive. Do you have any advice for aspiring game designers? I think my advice to game designers is to play a lot of different games. If you want to be a game designer and you want to build first-person shooters, don't just play first-person shooters. You have to understand all these other types of games that are out there. And that is something that I do run into as I run into students who are going to some of the game design universities and schools 
And I realize that they have no breadth of understanding of games. And I, you know, I ask them about different types of games and different genres. And what's clear is they fully understand this genre that they're interested in, but they don't understand all the other genres. And I think it's really important that they do. So if you want to make adventure games, make sure you understand first-person shooters. Make sure you understand sports games. Make sure you understand, you know, role-playing games. And I think that's true of anything. You have to understand these. You don't necessarily have to enjoy playing them, but you have to understand what goes into these games because there's a lot that can really be lifted from different genres and, and used, and you have to understand that. What, what do you think of that whole phenomenon of university-level game design programs? I think it's a good thing. I think it's a really good thing. I think it helps to legitimize what we do and not just making toys for kids, but doing something that's actually somewhat important. Uh, I think that's good. I, I do have a little bit concerns about some of the schools whose sole function is to just churn kids through them and teach them game design. Because I think, you know, much like making a film, there's a, there's kind of this breadth of knowledge that you have. And that's why I would, I would like to see these programs integrated into real universities. So the, people that are coming out of those with a degree in game design have also taken classes on literature and they've also taken classes on history and they've also taken classes on philosophy and they've taken all of these other classes. And when you're creating art, it is very, very important that you understand all of these different aspects of stuff. And it's about, you know, it's about getting a well-rounded education. And so that's why I'd like to, I'd like to see, you know, real universities do more, uh, with with game design as an actual curriculum. Uh, so, what are you working on now? Uh, right now, I've uh, I've gone to work uh, for uh, with Tim Schaefer at Double Fine. I don't know if you guys uh, knew that announcement or not. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, and so I'm putting together a design right now for a game that I hope to begin uh, production on within a month or so. Uh, okay. Is there anything you can tell us uh, about that? <laughs> <laughs> nope. That's it. That's all I can say. Yeah, I don't. I'm not really prepared to talk about it, other than it's going to be a really fun game. I hope. Well, we're definitely looking forward to it. Whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> All right, great. Well, uh, Ron Gilbert, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, thank you very much. Had a great time. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Ron Gilbert for joining us on the show. Okay, so uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back right after this word from our sponsor. New from Brilliance Audio, Pump Six and Other Stories by Paolo Bacigalupi. The stories in Pump Six chart the evolution of Paolo Bacigalupi's work, including the Hugo Award nominee Yellow Card Man and the Sturgeon Award-winning story The Calorie Man, both set in the world of his novel The Wind-Up Girl. This collection also demonstrates the power and reach of the science fiction short story. Social criticism, political parable, and environmental advocacy lie at the center of Bacigalupi's work. Each of the stories herein is at once a warning and a celebration of the tragic comedy of the human experience. Paolo Bacigalupi has won the Hugo Award, Nebula Award, the Theodore Sturgeon Award, the John W. Campbell Award, the Compton Crook Award, and the Locus Award. Between his award-winning debut novel, The Wind-Up Girl, and this landmark collection of short fiction, 
Paolo Bacigalupi, demonstrates why he is one of the most celebrated science fiction writers of the 21st century. An unabridged recording of Pump 6 and other stories by Paolo Bacigalupi, narrated by Jonathan Davis, James Chen, and Eileen Stevens. Available now from Brilliance Audio and wherever audiobooks are sold. And we're back. So now we're going to be talking about some adventure games. You know, so I was thinking that the first adventure game I ever played was actually this text-based game called Adventure mm. uh, that I would play. You know, um, both both my parents are scientists and, and they worked at this um, scientific laboratory. And so a lot of times they would just kind of like stick me at a computer and just tell me to entertain myself on, on the computer when they were when they were busy with other stuff. And actually my, my parents were telling me that, you know, I, I don't remember this, but, but when I was a baby, they uh, like left me in my dad's office. And then this is like after uh, after work hours, and then they were, they were just playing adventure, and they were like totally wrapped up in it, and kind of forgot about me, and I started crying, and they didn't notice. Huh. And so one of the security guys like came by and found me, <laughs> and uh, and he came and found them, and, and said, "Did you know that your baby is crying?" And they were like really uh, abashed because they were just like playing adventure on the on the computer. You're like, wait, did we have a baby? <laughs> Maybe some people listening to this have never actually played a text adventure game if you're uh, if you're younger. And uh, so you know how it works is, you know, there's just like a, a sentence or two where it says you're standing outside a house, there's a mailbox here or something, and you would type in open mailbox and, and it would tell you you've opened the mailbox, there's some mail inside, and, and you would play the game like that. And and so in this game adventure, it was really hard though because uh, you sort of, you immediately find your way into this underground maze and, you know, it's sort of a fantasy thing. Um, but you get you get a lantern, and the lantern has a certain amount of fuel. And everything you do, you know, every every move you make and every command you type causes time to pass and causes the lantern fuel to burn down. And once the lantern runs out of fuel, darkness descends, and you die instantly. And uh, so, and there's no way to, and you can't save your game. So every time you play, you have to start at the beginning and go down into this dungeon, and then you run out of, in, in, you know, inevitably run out of lantern fuel and, and die. You know, those those early games. Uh, they were pretty brutal, but it was it was funny how like Ron Gilbert was talking about you know how people have this perception that games are like toys for kids, and and it's funny because I never had that perception because from my earliest memories I was playing this game adventure at this scientific lab, and all these super mm-hmm. smart PhD scientists were all playing this game too, and all comparing notes on how far they'd gotten it, and then you know they would give me hints and stuff, and I always just. It always just thought of playing a game like that as a really high level intellectual challenge that adults mm-hmm. were you know that really really smart adults were were into too yeah but um I think my um my first adventure game was probably Zork um you know which is i think a, a sort of descendant of adventure um i mean it's certainly text adventure, but i think um it's uh it's a, like a direct descendant um mm-hmm. did, did we talk about the the documentary get lamp on the show before I don't think so. Yeah, so um, anybody interested in adventure games, actually, uh, there's this cool documentary called Get Lamp. Like, when you're playing these games, one of the things you would do is, like like Dave said, you would say, like, open mailbox. And so Get Lamp comes from one of these games. One of the things that you would type in would be the Get Lamp. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's just a history of, of text adventure games. Um, and uh, it's just really interesting, uh, sort of how they talk about the evolution of them and how they how they started and how they um, sort of peaked and then eventually disappeared because, uh, you know, nobody makes them anymore. Which is actually kind of sad because you think that there would be room for in the marketplace for games like that also. But I mean, I guess it's really hard to compete when you have um, games like Halo or whatever with uh, super awesome graphics and all kind of fancy, um, you know, frenetic action and whatnot. 
I was, kind of, I was kind of thinking about that, how it strikes me as a little odd is that text adventure games disappeared from the marketplace so entirely, but we still have books, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. where they're both text-based things. Um, mm-hmm. I've actually read that there are sort of like, you know, kind of volunteer efforts to keep making text adventure games. And then if you poke around on the internet, you can find communities that are still doing them. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. There certainly are sort of fan-created uh, text adventure games all over. I mean, you can just, like, Google Zork, and you can find it online. Like, you can play it in a Java applet. Although I have to say, after so after I, I discovered this after watching Get Lamp, and uh, I because I was like, oh, I want to try playing Zork again That was because that was awesome, you know? And so I started to play it, and, uh, I mean, I don't know if I just, like, I got dumber as I got older or what, but, man, I got I got stuck so fast. It was pathetic. And, like, maybe I just don't understand uh, how to think properly in terms of the game mechanics anymore because I, I've moved on to, like, more complex games. But, oh, man, it was so it was so frustrating because it was, like, I just, I, I mean, I got stuck within, like, 10 minutes, and I just, I didn't know what to do. Um, and it was so it was really disappointing, and I just gave up. But, well, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, like, a lot of the old games, I mean, like I was saying, they just made no, there were no compromises made to, to make it easy on the player, you know? Like, there was a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text adventure game. I mean, And as a kid, man, I never got anywhere in that one. Um, but, like, the, the worst example of that is one of the early earliest Sierra games. Um, even before they were called Sierra, it was this game. It was, like, the Princess and the Sorcerer or something like that. And the very first screen, you're in this desert, and there's a rock. And you can't go anywhere until you solve this one puzzle. And you look behind to the rock, and there's a scorpion or something. And I could never figure out how to kill the scorpion, and that, so I never got I, I never got past the first screen of that game. Um, that actually reminds me of uh, uh, of one of the other types of adventure games. You know, a little bit beyond the text adventure game, but it's like sort of a hybrid between graphic a graphic game and and a text adventure. You know, where like it's basically like a a text adventure game, but with some visuals. You know, where it would just have sort of art to depict like each scene that you go to, but then like to control the game, you would still use like text to tell it what to do. And I, I remember playing. Did you ever play this game called Deja Vu? Yeah, yeah, it's sort of a noir, a film noir. Sort yeah, of thing. yeah, like a noir thing. And uh, man, I love that game. Like, there's this one scene where where like you find this car. And, and like I guess the the character he has like amnesia or something right like he doesn't know he doesn't know he's a private eye but he has amnesia I uh-huh. think yeah. um, and so he doesn't know what's going on and so he 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 finds this car maybe it's his car or whatever I think it's his car and so he you, you find the key and you use it to open up the trunk and then there's this woman in the trunk and so like you have to use sodium sodium pentothal on her to make her talk um, which is like it's like a truth serum um, sort of thing it's like I, that just stuck with me like because I was like oh man that was so awesome when I finally figured it out but. Well, I remember this. I remember this one other part of the game where, like, you go to your office and it's like one of those doors with this sort of um, uh, translucent windows, like so you can't see through it, but like you can kind of see through it. And uh, so you walk up to the door and there's like, and you see a shadow in there. And so what you actually have to do is you have to shoot the person through the glass door with your gun because like they're gonna kill you if you go in there. And so it's just kind of funny because uh, I mean it's like cool in the game to figure that out, but it is kind of funny because you're like, well. So I guess this guy is a shoot first, ask questions later sort of guy, right? I mean, because, like, you have no idea who's in there. It's like you would only know because, like, you, you played the game and earlier in, in your first try you got killed because you went into the door. So you're like, oh, well, next time after I load my saved game, I'll, I'll just shoot first and ask questions later, you know? 
what 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 you're saying is is one of the things that Ron Gilbert was rebelling against in, in adventure games was how was these situations where you had to go and die to find out mm-hmm. what you were supposed to do you know that mm-hmm. there was no way to know what you were supposed to do without the knowledge that you gained by dying the first time right. around right right um but but yeah i am sort of haunted by some of the puzzles i never solved like like in, in adventure there was this there was this part where you uh, i think you would feed a bear or something and it would follow you but then you would come to this rickety wooden bridge and you could walk across the bridge and then the bear would follow you across the bridge and the bridge would break and the bear would fall to its death. I could never figure out what you were supposed to do there. And it still kind of bugs me. There was, uh, But the, the, the thing from Adventure that, that I remember the most vividly is there, was, there were these two labyrinths that you would come to. And one, it said something like, you were in a maze of twisty, turny passages all different. And, uh, and, and so you would hit, you know, go north or go west or whatever. And you, and you would end up in another room that said essentially the same thing. And you had to actually like get out a piece of paper and draw a map. And the only way to figure out what room you were in from move to move, because it was all twisty and turny, was each room, the, the sentence would be slightly different. It might say turny twisty rather than twisty turny or, or something like that, or the commas would be in different places and things like that. And so depending on exactly what, <laughs> what letters and things were used, you know, you knew which room you were in from that, and you could kind of draw a map and see where, you know, which rooms connected to which, if you went in which directions and things. And so, so you finally figure that out, and you make it through that maze, and then you get to another maze that's sort of the same thing. But in that one, it says you were in a maze of twisty, turny passages all the same, and every single room was exactly the same. And so you're like, wait, how do I get through this one? And it turned out what you had to do was just gather up enough items to drop an item in every single room in this maze, and then you would know which room you would come to based on what item was sitting on the floor. And then the other uh, text adventure game I remember really vividly was this one called Wishbringer. And uh, in that one, you, um, you're you sort of in this town, and you're sent to this house um, on top of a mountain overlooking the town, and you're sent to deliver a, deliver a package. And then, uh, and then when you go back into town, everything's sort of a dark, sinister version of itself. And you eventually find a way to sort of go back and forth between the sinister world and the everyday world. And, and so the one puzzle I, I really remember from, for the, from that game... You, you know, so you're in the sinister world, and there was some item you needed in this fountain in the middle of town, but there was this piranha swimming around, and so you couldn't, you couldn't reach into the water to get it. Um, and so what you had to do is go back into the everyday world, and in that fountain there would be just like a, a, a friendly fish swimming around, and if you scooped that fish out and took him somewhere else, then when you went back to the sinister world, the piranha would be gone. Mm. Uh, I always thought that was a really mm. cool puzzle. But I mean, you know, the adventure games really started getting popular with King's Quest. And, uh, you know, so, so my first computer that I got was, uh, was an IBM PC Jr. And it's uh, a much maligned computer for various <laughs> reasons, but I always really liked it because it had 16 color graphics. And, uh, you know, at the time, normal PCs only had four colors. And 16 so... colors? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so, so it came with King's Quest on it. And, man, King's Quest was so advanced compared to anything else you'd ever seen at that time. There's actually, like, a character on the screen. You could move him around, and you would walk around, and you could walk around behind trees and stuff. And mm-hmm. it was pretty, uh, pretty fancy stuff. Uh, and, and so in King's Quest, you know, you're, uh, you're a knight, and you're sent, the king sends you out into the countryside to, to find three lost treasures. And, uh, and so you solve puzzles. But so, it's, so it's kind of like, you know, you walk around on the screen, but then you also type in commands. And what you're typing appears at the bottom of the screen. So you would type, you know, push rock or whatever at the bottom of the screen. And so, uh, so my friends and I, my best friend at the time, and I would, would play that game. And so we would sort of like sit side by side at the computer and I would move the character around and he would type, you know, because if you're at that age, it takes you a while to type, you know, throw rock or something. 
and so you could easily die if you were uh, you know while you were trying to type something and so it was handy to have another player there who could uh, make you run away from monsters while you were trying to type in throw rock or whatever yeah so we, we played like all all the games like that and it was kind of sad you know eventually in, in king's quest 4 they made it so that the game paused when you started typing hmm. and it kind of uh messed up the team dynamic we had going on there mm-hmm. but yeah so there was there was king's quest and then there was sort of a a science fiction kind of version called space quest in which you're uh you're you're a janitor on a you know a space station and it gets attacked by aliens and you have to save the world but you're this kind of like clumsy lazy guy and uh, those were those were very funny uh one thing that was really sort of funny about those uh the space quest games is that they would make is that there were like all sorts of ways to die you were just dying all the time and the game would really make fun of you whenever you died that it was it was kind of funny because you would just like try to find every possible way there was to die just to see like what kind of funny stuff uh, the game would say Okay, so uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back right after this word from our sponsor. New, from Brilliance Audio, The God Engines, by John Scalzi. Captain Aeon Teffa is a man of faith whose allegiance to his lord and to his ship is uncontested. The bishopry militant knows this, and so when it needs a ship and a crew to undertake a secret, sacred mission to a hidden land, Teffa is the captain to whom the task is given. Tefa knows from the start that his mission will be a test of his skill as a leader of men and as a devout follower of his god. It's what he doesn't know that matters, to what ends his faith and his ship will ultimately be put, and that the tests he will face will come not only from his god and the bishopry militant, but from another, more malevolent source entirely. Author John Scalzi has ascended to the top ranks of modern science fiction with the best-selling, Hugo-nominated novels Old Man's War and Zoe's Tale. Now he tries his hand at fantasy, with a dark and different novella that takes your expectations of what fantasy is and does and sends them tumbling. Say your prayers and behold the God Engines. An unabridged recording of The God Engines by John Scalzi. Narrated by Christopher Lane. Available now from Brilliance Audio, and wherever audiobooks are sold. And we're back. The the Space Quest thing just reminded me of this one this one other game I played. I I, I remember the game pretty well, but I, I don't remember the name of it. Um, I thought it was called the Omnicron Conspiracy, and there is a game called that. But I, I was looking it up, and Omnicron Conspiracy seems to be a different game. Um, although there is only sketchy information about it online. I, I can't actually find a good uh, sort of synopsis of it. Like Wikipedia doesn't have it on their list of adventure games or anything. But um, so this game I'm remembering was like this sort of cyberpunk thing. It's like, you know, so you start the game and like you have to go get your, your like cyber deck out of, uh, out of Hawk at, at the pawn shop. And, and like, you know, you need that so that you can access like cyberspace or whatever. And I just like I remember that like after you know after I sort of grew up and and discovered cyberpunk and everything and started reading all the science fiction and I was like, hey, well, you know I remember this game from when I was a kid that I played. But yeah, I mean those games were full of like in jokes and references and 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 things you know like like in Space Quest Three like your ship is called the Aluminum Mallard and uh, you know you you walk around this junkyard and there's just like junk from different sci sci fi franchises mm-hmm. and things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was, you know, like you would actually come across the thing later in your life. You're like, oh, yeah, like you're saying, like, oh, yeah, that's what that, that's what that thing was from. Right, right. 
But, you know, I mean, like, as great as those games were, I mean, there were some serious problems with them. You know, like, like one of the things is, like, the parser interface where you would type in commands. You know, you would have to, sometimes you'd have to type in exactly the right thing or the game had no idea what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And so, like, in Space Quest 2, there was this puzzle where, fortunately, there are other ways to do it, because I don't know how anyone would ever figure this out. But you, um, you know, you have to sneak by this guard. And one thing is you can do is you have this jock strap that you've been carrying since the beginning of the game. And so you can, like, pick up a rock and use the jock strap as a slingshot and, like, sling a rock at the guard and, and, and kill him, basically. But, like, even, and, and so it's, like, not really, like, an obvious thing that you would think to do. Um, but even if you know what you're supposed to do, like, I, I can remember playing, playing that game and being like, okay, I know I have to use this as, you know, I know what I have to do here. Like, what are you supposed to type? You're like, use jockstrap as slingshot to kill hmm. guard. And it's like, nope, I don't know what you're talking about. You just like type variation after variation of that, and, and the game would not, you know, you, you had to get you had to get exactly the right thing. And another frustrating thing was that the games were just full of dead ends. It was really easy to just mess up, sort of, you know, like like Ron Gilbert was talking about, and and not realize it. And and you you can't win the game anymore, more, but you don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. And so, like one of the worst examples of that is there's in King's Quest Four, like right at the very beginning, it, you end up in a scene out of uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And so you clean the dwarf's house and they give you some diamonds, or they leave some diamonds on the table and then they, they leave. And so you take the diamonds over to the next screen and, and give them to this poor fisherman and he gives you a fishing pole and, and it seems like you're on your way. But then if, you, if, if that's what you do, then you end up like all the way at the end of the game. There's this dark cave and you just die whenever you go into it. And, and you just spend hours and hours trying to figure out how to get through this dark cave and there's just no way through it. And it turns out that back at the beginning of the game, you were supposed to take the diamonds and first try to return them to the dwarves and then give them to the fishermen, hmm. you know, and just like stuff like, like I can, you know, like when I realized that, I was like, oh my God, I have to play through the entire game from the beginning. It's, oh, mm-hmm. it's just such a nightmare. One other thing, this isn't quite as bad, but one uh, commentator called this the problem of amnesia, where in a lot of the adventure games, you would have to figure out stuff that your character should know. And this was like really uh, an, an annoying thing about the Police Quest games, is that you would have to like search through your desk and search through your car and search through your computer to find basic information that your character should know, like your locker combination or your girlfriend's address, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. So, so there were just, I mean, you know, you really had to have a high threshold for frustration to to play a lot of these games. Well, I'm glad that adventure games have evolved out of that. Um, you know, I mean, Ron Gilbert talked about this game Limbo in the interview and uh you know i, I played i i downloaded that and played it a little bit on the xbox um and you know it's it's really really cool i mean you know i haven't played an adventure game in quite a while i mean you know because basically people have stopped making them but you know i guess because uh you know this is a game that you just buy as sort of in the xbox live arcade uh so it's like you know i don't know it's seven bucks or something and um you know so it's like a smaller type of game it's not like the it's not it's not competing with the major releases that like 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 halo and whatnot um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's really, really cool. I mean, it's, uh, it's really atmospheric. It's got really cool graphics. Um, I got stuck a couple times and, and I, and I eventually figured it out. And then, um, one time I just got really, really stuck and I, and I, uh, ashamedly, I had to go on the internet and look up how to get past it. Cause I was like, well, I can either stop playing the game or I can look it up on the internet because, uh, you know, I'd already spent like two hours or something just like, ah, oh, what is, what am I supposed to do here? And then it was so obvious once I figured it out, once I looked it up, you know, it's like, I was really embarrassed that I couldn't figure it out. Well, I really wish with the adventure games that there was some sort of like technology where you could find out what the solution is. 
And if you're like, oh, that was a good puzzle that you could sort of erase your memory, you hmm. know, of it, you know, but because there, there's a lot of times where like you're so tempted to look up the solution and you're like, oh, I just suspect that this is like a stupid puzzle and I'm going to be so angry hmm. when I find out what the solution is. And yeah. I just wish that I could, you know, do that. Just look forward in time a little bit and ask myself, is this, am I going to be sorry that I, right, I looked right. up the solution here? See, you know, I mean, I think with Limbo, it's the sort of game where like it really, um, it earns your trust really early on because like it's like it's just so well made and um you know i when i got to the part that i got stuck on i i didn't think that it was a stupid puzzle uh i mean i i was i was very confident that it was something that was very intricate and i just couldn't figure it out how to do it you know uh, i i don't i don't even see how the game engine would allow for those type, type of stupid puzzles because like everything you need to do is just like on the screen there i mean it's like it's not like you have to carry something from from early on in the game or whatever there was also the one adventure game I played recently was this game Machinarium. It's by a Czech developer, like a, a small company, I think. It's worth checking out. It's it's just it's so beautiful. I mean, just the the artwork is really amazing. Um, the puzzle design is pretty good. It has sort of a very simplified interface. The there were sort of two things that I, I sort of two problems I had with it. Um, and one is that you know there's no there's no text in it. Uh, I assume they just uh, there's a, there, there are these sort of cartoons that tell the story and stuff, but it does create kind of a problem because this little, you know, there's this little robot and you tell him to do stuff and, you know, whenever he can't or won't do something, he just sort of shakes his head. And so a lot of times you're not quite sure why, you know, you try to pick up something that's on a high shelf and he just kind of shakes his head and you don't know whether it's because he doesn't want that thing or he can't reach it or whatever, you know, and, and in a lot of adventure games, the character would talk to you and he would say, I can't reach it or I don't need that. And at least you would know. Um, and then there are just a lot of like brain teaser type things um, where, you know, you have to solve, you know, puzzles where you move blocks around and stuff like that. And I really hate stuff like that hmm. in adventure games. You know, it's like when I play an adventure game, I want adventure game puzzles where it involves the characters and the story and the world and stuff like that. And it just seems sort of like a cheat, a cheat to me when, you know, like you meet a character and he's like, well, I'll give you this key that you need. But first you have to solve this Sudoku puzzle. <laughs> and, you know, like, dude, if I wanted to solve sudoku puzzles i would do that you know i want adventure game stuff it's sort of the same thing when they they put in like action sequences sometimes in adventure games and a lot of adventure like diehard adventure game players really hate those They're like you know if i wanted to play an action game i'd play an action game you know leave mm -hmm. this stuff out of my adventure game although like you know there are some good hybrids of of adventure games and action games but you kind of want to know that that's what you're getting uh getting yourself in for you don't just want it to pop up randomly halfway through the game Mm -hmm. um but like there was this uh um one of the um sierra games was was this game quest for glory when it was kind of a hybrid of a of an adventure game and a role-playing game and they had pretty fun action stuff where you would fight monsters and actually if you want to see what that game was like uh you should go on youtube and there's this guy late blight it's like l-a-t-e-b-l-t and he does like playthroughs where he plays through the whole game and provides running commentary and the guy, he's absolutely hilarious. He has this really dry sense of humor. And, you know, you can just watch him play the game for hours and, and listen to his just sort of, you know, wry observations. And it's it's really entertaining. Um, and so he's done those for a couple of different games. Yeah, and I guess also, like, if you just want to, like, check out the old, any of the old Sierra Adventure games, um, you should know about, there's this site called Sarian.net, um, S-A-R-I-E-N.net. But this guy is sort of doing, like, emulation software where you can play a lot of those games just in your browser. And it looks like you can also maybe put them on your iPad, too. I don't know if that's, that might still be kind of, like, in development. 
And there's also a, a group called AGD, uh, Anonymous Game Developers, and they've been doing sort of, you know, 256 color remakes of, of a lot of the old games that were originally um, 16 colors. But uh, there was one other thing I wanted to mention regarding the Sierra games is that there's this um, coffee table book that's going to be coming out called The Art of Sierra. Oh, right. Where it's like all, I don't know, I guess they, they got access to just all boxes full of old artwork and stuff that were used in the games. And so they've put together, I mean, it looks like it's going to be just a gorgeous uh, coffee table book. Um, and there's a website for that called artofsierra.com. This this episode just reminded me of um, you know uh, Nick Sagan is is the son of Carl Sagan you know Nick Sagan actually his voice is on the Voyager probe you know saying like you know um, welcome from the people of Earth or whatever he says you know when he was a little kid anyway the reason I mention him is because um, you know on his website he actually has this uh, chat bot called Chaos like I mean there's actually there apparently are, there are some chat bots that will pass uh, at least uh, some versions of the Turing test so they you know they can you know they they seem real enough that they seem like real people. Um, I don't know if chaos is that sophisticated, but I mean, I I, I interviewed Nick once and uh, he mentioned this this chatbot, so I went on his website and, and sort of poked around with it. Um, and it's actually it, it is actually quite amusing to uh, to play around with it. And I mean, it kind of feels a little bit like a text adventure game, just because like you know you you're asking it questions and you're trying to figure out. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what sort of responses or what, what you should say to it to get like, you know, new and interesting responses from it. So, well, like uh, years ago, I read an article, they, they had, they were having this contest for people to produce text programs that would try to, you know, try to fool people mm -hmm. and ver various approaches were being tried, including, you know, making programs that could actually analyze what the person was saying to them and try to understand it and try to come up with a sensible response. And at least at this point, the most successful strategy for making one of these programs was just to, it was just, just this guy and he would just like sit around in his underwear all day, you know, typing in responses to every single thing he could think of that a person might say. Hmm. So the you know, the program had no understanding whatsoever. It was a complete just rote machine that just spit out canned responses to specific questions. And uh, I've always been struck by something that this guy said, is he said that 90% of human conversation is, is so stupid and so meaningless that, you know, you don't know, you, you can write a computer program that does it just as well as a person, even if it, the computer program doesn't understand what it's saying. You know, it's, it's hmm. that sort of ritualized and, and empty. I always thought that was really interesting. It sort of reminds me, actually, one of these other Sierra Adventure games was Leisure Suit Larry uh, came up uh, in the interview. And, um, I mean, one of the fun things about the, when you had the text parser, you, know, you could just type in anything. Um, you know, and so you would get frustrated and you would type in, you know, obscene things, or you would just try to do funny things, you know, and, and sometimes the, you would, you would try something and the game designer would have anticipated this and it would, it would give back a funny response. And, and that was always really surprising and delightful. And so actually with, with the first Weezer Suit Larry game, I read that Alwo would just, uh, you know, when people, when the company was testing the game, he would just sit behind people with a, a notebook and just write down every single thing that they tried. And then he, he made sure that the game had some sort of funny response for every single thing that somebody in testing had tried to, to, to do or, or say to the program. And that's just, you know, just a really cool thing you get with a text parser that you can't get with a, you know, a, a point and click interface or just pushing buttons or whatever. And that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you're feeling generous this holiday season, please open up iTunes, type in Geek's Guide to the Galaxy and Radar Podcast. We currently have eight ratings, and we'd really like to get that up to, say, ten. So if you could help us out with that, we would really appreciate it. 
Also, this is going to be our last episode of 2010, so have a happy new year, and we'll see you again in January. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9 and is brought to you by Brilliance Audio. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast or for more information about the show, visit io9.com slash tag slash geeks guide. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.